Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. One of the particular markers of the Latin rite of the Catholic Church is priestly celibacy. How did this discipline develop there? Why did it develop? What does it mean? Since it is a discipline that could be changed, should it be made optional? Father Gary Sellen, in his new book, Priestly Celibacy, Theological Foundations, published by Catholic University Press in 2016, wrestles with these questions. Following an overview of the development of this discipline and a summation of theological arguments for it, Father Salem contends that priestly celibacy should be understood not only as a mandatory discipline, but as a gift, and develops a synthesis that ties together its Christological, ecclesiological, and eschatological significance through the Eucharist. This tightly organized, well-written, and theologically rich work is highly recommended for anyone, regardless of the level of knowledge, who is interested in the issue of celibacy and Catholicism and the theology and history behind it. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Christian Studies. I'm Dr. Franklin Rausch of Lander University, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Father Gary Salen about his new book, Priestly Celibacy, Theological Foundations. Father Gary, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Frank. I appreciate you having me. Well, thank you so much for having us. And, and the way we like to start off these interviews, we just want to ask you to tell us a little bit about yourself. Certainly. I am a Catholic priest in the Archdiocese of Denver, and I was born in Idaho, the gem state. And after some undergraduate school, I eventually entered a monastery in Portugal and Brazil. So I was overseas for about six years. But I discerned out, I left the monastery back in 97 before I was ordained a priest. So I ended up in Washington, D.C. area in the late 90s, where I worked on a master's degree at the Dominican House of Studies. And in the year 2000, I came out here to Denver to finish my seminary studies for the priesthood. So after only three years, I was ordained a priest in 2003. And I was assigned by Archbishop Chaput, the former Archbishop of Denver, for a year at a parish in Lakewood, which is a suburb of Denver. And then 2004, I went out to Catholic University in Washington, D.C., where I worked on a doctorate in systematic theology. So that is where I am with regards to my studies. When I finished that, the doctorate, I graduated in 2011, I came back here to the seminary, and I've been working ever since 2008. My full-time work is formation of the seminarians. That means I am in charge of overseeing the the various uh, pillars or dimensions of priestly formation, which includes the human the spiritual, the academic, and the pastoral. And it's really full-time work, but I do have enough time to teach a class each semester. That keeps my foot in the classroom. So I'm very happy. God's blessed me very much to be a, a priest of Jesus Christ. And uh, in the meantime, uh, in the midst of all that, I managed to write a book uh, on priestly celibacy, and it was a develop, development of my dissertation on the same subject. And so... I've just been, I think, just scratched the surface on this, really. And this interview helps me to kind of synthesize some thoughts 
that come up in the research. Right. And it, it, and I really enjoyed reading your book. It was really fascinating. And, and for our audience, this is an interesting book because it provides kind of a um, review of what's out there on priestly celibacy, some discussion of ways to bring it together, which is what we'll be spending a lot of this interview about. Um, and then also some directions for further research. So this is um, a continuation of work, but not going to be the end. Exactly. Yes. So, so, since um, I, you, you mentioned, uh, you know, this was development of your doctoral thesis for our um, listeners, especially those who aren't familiar with um, uh, Catholic doctrine. Can you tell us what exactly do you mean by the term priestly celibacy? Yes. Well, celibacy in itself in the Catholic Church refers to, let me say, the willed state not to enter marriage. So it's not just a default not being married, because that could be a bachelor or a frat boy in the university, but it's a willed state for a higher good. And that can be usually taken by way of a promise or a vow in the Catholic Church, open both to men and women. But priestly celibacy is a particular form of the celibate life that the man who is studying for the priesthood in the Catholic Church and has received that gift from the Holy Spirit before his ordination to the priesthood as deacon, as during his diaconal ordination, he makes a promise of celibacy before his bishop. And from that moment on, he makes the promise and he's held to the promise of not taking a wife, not marrying and, and raising a family. So celibacy is that, that sense of uh, becoming consecrated to God to imitate the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. So priestly celibacy has as a particular element in it, the imitation of the life of Christ himself in his apostolic work. Oh, excellent, excellent. We could tell, I can tell you're definitely a theologian because you're very careful with your definitions. And, um, yes, well, and we'll get into that later because, of course, being a celibate priest is different from being a celibate monk or nun. Yes, and that was one of the great challenges going into this writing project is um, there's a lot written on celibacy. So, for example, there's quite a bit on the history of the development of celibacy, on the sociology, the psychology, even the spirituality. That is how to live out in the spiritual life, the celibate life. But what surprised me very much was that there's very little been offered in the last 30, 40 years with regards to a, a deep theology of celibacy. Namely, how do we make sense of it from a uh, biblical, uh, patristic uh, background? and where it can develop from there. And that was a real surprise to me. And so my book was a contribution to what about a specific priestly celibacy, not just something that's shared, for example, by a Carmelite nun or a Franciscan brother, but what about about the priesthood and celibacy that the two really fit together in the Latin church? Right. And what is it then that you're trying to do in this book? Well, what I'm attempting uh, to do is to formulate a, a coherent understanding and defense of celibacy for priests, because these days it's very much questioned, if not uh, under attack, because it seems so unreasonable, or if not unearthly. So what I wanted to do is to show, look, there's some indications in Scripture and in the, the early bishops in the Catholic Church, whom we call fathers of the Church, and development of great theologians such as St. Thomas Aquinas and subsequent thinkers, that there's something very fitting, something very appropriate uh, for celibacy to be maintained even in the 21st century. 
in the Catholic Church. Oh, excellent. Right. So, and you, you mentioned um, just a moment ago the Latin Church, and your first chapter uh, is entitled The Development of Clerical Continents and Celibacy in the Latin Church. So, again, could you tell our listeners that, um, I mean, what is the Latin Church? Is that the same thing as the Catholic Church? No, it is a part of the Catholic Church. So, the Latin Church is sometimes called the Western Church or the Latin Rite. It can be described as really the largest autonomous particular church. A church is that which um, has its own liturgical rite, its own ceremonies, vestments, chants, and language, has its own particular devotional traditions, its own theology, its own canon law. And so it's it's a very, it's called sui, sui iuris church. So in the Catholic Church is 24 such particular churches. The largest of these 24 is the Latin Church, and that's what most people think of when they see a Catholic Church in the United States. The other 23 are what we call Eastern Catholic Churches, such as those in Lebanon and Syria and Iraq and Russia and Greece. And these are as much churches with a small c as is the Latin Church. But what the what what I've done in the book is to only focus on a celibacy in the Latin Church, the tradition from the beginning of the apostles, but tracing it through the popes and the bishops in the Western churches, and leaving to the side the the question about the Eastern Catholic churches, even though I do take that up from time to time, but that would merit a different volume uh, of study. So how then, um, and there is a contrast, right? The Eastern Catholic churches often do have a married priesthood? Yes, they do. And they have married priests, but also celibate priests. But all the bishops in the the Eastern churches are celibate. And even in the Orthodox churches, those who are not, do not uh, see the the Pope as the, the head of the church, they also take all of their bishops from the monks or from the, the, the celibate clergy, even though they also allow for, for married priests. That's one thing in the first chapter I look at is how this came about. You know, how if the, if the Christian, if the Catholic Church traces its beginning to the apostles, how do you have this uh, variety, you know, in the different uh, churches than the Catholic Church? So to keep a certain simplicity of view throughout the book, I said, okay, I'm going to talk a little bit about the Eastern churches, but we're just going to trace the line from uh, Jesus Christ until the 21st century, the development of the, the clergy and the clerical life, particularly in the view of, of celibacy. And to get there, I also had to talk about continents. So that's I'm glad you brought that up about continents, because continents is a broader term, and continent refers to the complete refraining from sexual intercourse. So it's it's understood a celibate priest will be perfectly continent. Uh, he cannot have sexual relations uh, with anyone else. Uh, to begin with, he's not married. Right. <laughs> but also with regards to temporary continence, that can be practiced by married couples. And St. Paul refers to this in 1 Corinthians when he speaks about it's permitted for husband and wife to abstain from sexual relations in order to devote themselves to prayer. But he says, but not for too long, lest, lest the evil one get between them. So he understood that this is a, a temporary withdrawing of conjugal love. 
in order to dedicate themselves to uh, to prayer. So continence can be referred to with regards to perpetual continence, which is lived by celibate priests, or temporary continence that can be embraced by married couples at certain times, or even with regards to married priests. That married priests, um, let's look at the Old Testament, the Levites and the priest uh, ministering in the temple, they had to separate from their wives uh, prior to and, and during the time of their ministry in the temple in Jerusalem. You know, and, and there were certain laws around that, that they would be temporarily continent in order to have a certain unity of body and soul that their prayer may be more efficacious. So, so then how did... Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, go on. Well, so in the first chapter, what I look at is some Old Testament foundations for continence and celibacy. And it's interesting just to look at uh, how this was a newness. This was a novelty that Jesus Christ himself introduced to the church. Because in the Old Testament, we know that uh, celibacy was looked down upon. It was seen as something that was other than what was the command of God, which is to increase and multiply. And to be unmarried and be childless, if anything, was a, was a, a sign of shame. We see various stories in the Hebrew scriptures with regards to that. There are some exceptions, such as the prophet Jeremiah. He was celibate. But even his celibacy was more of a prophetic sign of God's withholding of the covenantal blessing. And so the celibacy as an institution, as a way of life, was not part of the the Hebrew, the Jewish culture, but it did start to appear uh, during the time as we approach the time of Jesus Christ in the person of John the Baptist, most certainly, who himself was celibate. But as we look at the person of our Lord and then the apostles, uh, we see two things. We see that Jesus Christ himself was not married. There's no evidence in the New Testament at the, at the cross. Uh, his mother was at the foot of the cross and he had no one to give her to, so he gave family members, so he gave him to John the Apostle. One of the signs that our Lord was not did not enter into earthly marriage. But I think we can assume that the majority of the apostles were married, you know, following the, the Jewish custom. Usually the man got married at 16 years old. And the fathers, the bishops of the church, uh, recognized that, even though they were pretty much unanimous and uh, agreeing that St. John the Apostle was celibate. He never married. And so as we get in, out of the time of the apostolic times, uh, it took a while for celibacy really to take hold into the Christian church. Because as the Christian church was developing out of the Jewish background, where itself there was not the, the, the life of celibacy, um, first the apostles and their successors were interested in building up strong families, building up holy marriages, and from that strong family background, there would come forth what we call religious vocations, you know, vocations to the priesthood and what would develop into the religious life. So that took several generations. But of the apostles themselves and their successors, there are some pretty interesting uh, scriptures where our Lord indicates uh, that the apostles would have to leave behind wife and children, parents and land in order to follow him wherever he goes. You know, and so, for example, in the Gospel of St. Luke, he speaks about whoever leaves uh, father, mother, wife, and children, especially says wife, to follow me, will receive a hundredfold in this life and in the next. And the fathers 
commenting on that, say, well, here's an indication that, the, that Jesus Christ was asking even those married apostles who agreement with their wife to live a life of perfect and perpetual continence, continence so that they would uh, be able to minister with the, all their attentions, their body, their soul, to, to the, the preaching of the good news of the kingdom of God. So that was somewhat of, I think, the importance of talking about continence in the early church, because nowadays in the discussion, say, well, how we have in the Catholic Church married priests? Well, certainly uh, we do have married priests in the Latin Church, um, quite a few, more than one would recognize, and that would be um, mostly those uh, ministers in the Episcopal Church who converted to the Catholic Church and then been ordained by permission of the bishop into the Catholic priesthood. And so they, we do have married priests ministering in our diocese. But the, the rule is still that the candidates for uh, ministerial priesthood will be taken from the celibate men. Yes. But the whole idea of uh, reality of continence is usually not discussed uh, in, this, in this context. That um, What about the tradition of um, having you know, the, the discipline of continence as well? Into that, so as the fathers developed the the theology and the discipline in the early church, you did see in the Latin Church under the Pope's guidance, more and more of the candidates for bishop, priest, and deacon taken from the celibate uh, celibate men. But you still had married bishops, priests, and deacons. From our evidence, we we have I think bishops uh, married bishops ceased probably around the fourth or fifth century both in the East and the West. So by that time, bishops started to become universally uh, taken from the celibate, celibate men, whereas you did continue to have uh, married priests and deacons in both East and West. But in the West, the popes would, uh, would uh, make sure that the perpetual, perfect perpetual continence was observed by the married priests, whereas in the East, they did not. In fact, they... Uh, were able through one council in the late 7th century uh, legislate that married priests could continue to have relations with their wives. So that was really the big split between East and West, at least Catholic and Orthodox, was in the late 7th century on that. So how did this then become a norm in the Latin Church? Well, as um, as we get into the 4th and 5th and 6th centuries, uh, first of all, bishops universally were celibate. And in the Catholic theological tradition, the bishop is seen as the high priest. And this was reaffirmed at the Second Vatican Council, the ecumenical council that took place in the 1960s. So the bishop himself is seen to summarize within his office uh, the perfections of the priesthood. And that had a great influence upon the lower clergy, namely the priests and deacons. Uh, with regards to priests themselves, or what we say presbyters, um, because um, because of the developing councils, particularly a couple of local councils in one was Second Carthage in the late fourth century, uh, reaffirmed what was re referred to as the apostolic tradition of perfect continence um, and celibacy for priests. But still, into the the second millennium, we would still have married priests in the Latin Church. But they would be bound before ordination. They and their wife would have to take the promise of continence. But the big uh, uh, 
uh, change. In other words, the what really made it pretty much universal in the Latin church was only in the 1500s. And that happened with the Council of Trent. With the Council of Trent, uh, there was the concern on the part of the bishops to renew and reform seminary training. And so they created what's the modern seminary system, which is quasi-monastic. So if you've ever been to a Catholic seminary, they're pretty big buildings. <laughs> they almost look like monasteries. So you'd have the men live together in these large groups under uh, the supervision of priests. So de facto, married candidates for the priesthood were eliminated because they could not move their wife and children into these seminaries. Um, and so that really was practically when it became universalized was in the late 1500s after the Council of Trent. But even after the Council of Trent, you would still have some men be, who were married being ordained priests in the Latin church, but only by permission of the Pope. So it wasn't fully like 100%, but for the most part, uh, that was uh, has been the, the tradition and the rule, at least from uh, the 1600s, 16th century there. Excellent. So in your, your second chapter, the renewed magisterial teaching on priestly celibacy, you kind of catch us up, right? Yeah. You, you, you cover the broader historical development in chapter one. In chapter two, you, you focus more um, on recent developments, especially magisterial teaching. But before you tell us about those developments, could you tell us what do you mean by the term magisterial teaching? Yeah, the magisterium, that term comes from the Latin word magister, which means teacher. And it refers to the teaching authority of the bishops in the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church. So I would say magisterium is the teaching office of the Catholic Church. That is the bishops in communion with the successor of Peter, the Bishop of Rome. And the Second Vatican Council Dei Verbum uh, number 10 refers to the magisterium having the task, quote, to give an authentic interpretation to the word of God whether in its written form, that's sacred scripture, or in the form of tradition, end quote. So the magisterium would be the, the Pope and the bishops united with him. And they teach primarily day-to-day uh, -day when they uh, are teaching the, the, the Catholic faith uh, through everyday teaching where uh, they're drawing upon tradition and scripture, but also in the more extraordinary instances at an ecumenical council, such as a Second Vatican Council in the early 1960s. Or even when the Pope will call certain cardinals and bishops to Rome and for some uh, meeting about certain doctrine. And sometimes the Pope will summarize those teachings in a, a document. and Or he may write one on his own call an encyclical that uh, I think a lot of people have heard about that. So... What I did in the book about magisterium was, so what I've talked to so far was the development of the discipline from the time of the apostles until the, the 20, 21st century. So the discipline refers to the proxies, the practical life, the way that the priest lives out his life concerning celibacy. But what I did in chapter one and even in the chapter two was show that with this development of the of, of, um, discipline in the Latin church, there also emerged an underlying theology that is a reflection rooted in scripture and tradition that gave reasons for the discipline, that gave foundations for the discipline. But this has been relatively under scrutinized, under uh, studied. 
so what had happened then was about around the time of the Second Vatican Council, and when I get into chapter 2, I start to look at something that very important happened at the Second Vatican Council, and that's when uh, the bishops came out with a uh, document, Prospidum Ordinis, which is on the ministerial priesthood, and devoted one chapter, chapter 16, to celibacy. And this was the most significant teaching document yet in the Catholic Church on uh, the theology of celibacy. But an interesting thing happened at the Vatican Council. Uh, Pope Paul VI, who was the Pope who closed the council, it was started by St. John XXIII, and he died early on in the council. But Paul VI used to watch the proceedings from a closed-circuit television in his apartment when he wasn't on the floor. And he started to get quite concerned about some some talks that were given by the more progressive bishops from Germany, for example, who were starting to push for optional celibacy, that is, not to require uh, mandatory celibacy for candidates to the priesthood, but to also allow universally, whatever married candidate came forward, to, they could be ordained as well. So he's, he intervened in the council and put a, a stop to any further discussion on celibacy, And he said, I will issue my own document in the future on celibacy. So that pretty much, he put a kibosh to that further discussion. But there was some, chapter 16 in Presbyterian Mornius was very rich on on celibacy. But we're still waiting at the end of Vatican Council for his own document. Well, that came out in 1967, and that's called Sacerdotalis Celibatus, which, from what I've read, is the most significant and complete uh, Catholic teaching on priestly celibacy. And it's relatively un- unknown, even by many Catholics. And a working theory I have in the book is the reason it's relatively unknown is because the next year, the same Pope, Paul VI, came out with his encyclical Humani Vitae, which defended the perennial Catholic teaching on married life, married love, and the prohibition against contraception. That being so controversial, particularly in 1968, I think it really stole some of the thunder from the encyclical from the previous year on celibacy. So we really, as Catholics, have not had, I think, the opportunity of mulling over, uh, thinking, praying, uh, researching this beautiful document of Paul VI. But in that document, I basically take that document, and for the rest of the book, I, I elaborate on his relatively unknown teaching about priestly celibacy, which is, which is wonderful uh, insights. That uh, still remained somewhat unknown by many Catholics, right? And and it doesn't. Um, I mean, you don't end with with him, right? It goes on. You you talk about uh, John Paul II, especially. Yes. Yeah, so Paul VI came out with um, a very helpful schema, uh, a threefold dimension of priestly celibacy. And he, he uses this to elaborate uh, priestly celibacy. So the threefold scheme is this. He talks about celibacy according to the Christological dimension, the ecclesiological dimension, and the eschatological dimension. So this is the threefold um, scheme, threefold triad, as it were, that Paul VI uh, brings up. And I'll talk about that here in a bit. But what I discovered was after Paul VI, that threefold scheme has influenced all subsequent Catholic magisterial teaching on celibacy including, and most particularly, St. John Paul II. So since the time of Paul VI in 1967, whenever the Catholic Church has come out with a teaching on celibacy, 
it follows it falls along the lines of that threefold dimension, namely, first of all, to look at celibacy as a Christological dimension. What do we mean by Christological? Christological dimension of celibacy refers to the way in which celibacy enhances the priest's configuration of Jesus Christ. In other words, when a when a man is ordained a priest in the Catholic Church, we believe that he's configured very closely uh, to Jesus, that he becomes one with him, and that he becomes Christ's voice, his eyes, his person in the world. And this is most particularly seen in the, his celebration of the sacraments, particularly the Mass. But celibacy allows the priest, it draws him into a further and deeper relationship with, with Christ. Then from that flows the, the, eschat, the ecclesiological dimension. That's the second dimension. So the priest, having been configured uh, more closely to, to Christ and through celibacy, because he does not have a wife and children to take care of, his heart can be fully focused on, on the Lord. Then he's more apt to minister to the church. Uh, so that's the ecclesiological dimension is the way in which celibacy enhances facilitates the priest's ministry to the church, to the people of God. And that comes under various forms. So John Paul II gave us, for example, four paradigms of the ecclesiological dimension, namely the priest as shepherd, as servant, as bridegroom, which is one that Paul, John Paul really particularly appreciated, and then of head, head of the body. And then from John Paul to the time of Pope Benedict, uh, he had continued that in Francis. I don't think Francis has come out yet with any uh, particular teaching on, on celibacy other than short citations, but I would not be surprised that he follows the same very handy, very simple scheme to help us understand celibacy. So that's chapter three as well. So it's, it's a way of looking deeper into what celibacy is, that threefold dimension. Oh, excellent. So, um, yeah, I thought that was really well, um, you know, well uh, kind of organized uh, way to kind of think about it. Could you comment a little bit, too, about how that is kind of connects this whole idea you emphasize throughout your book that celibacy isn't just a discipline. It's also a gift. Yes. Well, the gift part is so important. And that, if anything, the subtitle for the book would also be Theological Foundations of the Gift. Now, I'd like to go back to a story uh, to explain why I got interested in this and how I got to see celibacy as a gift. When I was a transitional deacon, that refers to the year before a seminarian's ordained a priest, we had the former Archbishop of Denver, Cardinal Stafford, gave a talk in our library about uh, celibacy. And it left me with a sense of wonder. Uh, the Cardinal Stafford argued that priestly celibacy was more than just a mere discipline. Uh, it was more than simply a law that could be easily changed. He taught that it was an integral to the priesthood and was intrinsically related to the Eucharist, but particularly as a gift. Now, the Greek word for gift is charism. So it's a charism. It's something in which the Holy Spirit gives to the candidate uh, for the priesthood. And that's one of the things I do here in the seminary as the young man comes in. I look at several things <clears throat> to see if he manifests uh, the wherewithal to be a priest in the Catholic Church, and one of which is 
can he live a celibate life joyfully? Is he is does he have that 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 gift from the Holy Spirit to have to live a life of Jesus Christ Himself? If we can think about uh, celibacy, let's use the image of a diamond. So if you have a diamond, you want to keep it safe, and so you keep it safe in a safe <laughs> safe deposit box, uh, something like at the bank. So canon law, which is the ch- the church law has a canon, canon 277, uh, paragraph 1, that refers to celibacy being the required state of a priest in the Catholic Church. If we can look at canon law as the safe, that's the safe that protects the gift of celibacy. So it's it, celibacy is not, first and foremost, a discipline, something that's burdensome, something that the priest has to do, but actually the canon law supports in maintains the gift of celibacy that and allows the priest to to flourish in in his life, you know, in his celibacy. I think that's important because oftentimes, particularly recently, it's another reason why I wanted to write this book, is sometimes uh, people think about celibacy, they, they say, Father, how can you live that way? I mean, isn't it, isn't it a burden? I, I say, well, it would be if I was not made by God uh, to live this way. But it is something that is, is given to me, and he's created my heart to live a certain way. So I'd like to give an, an analogy, another one from the 1970s. So have you ever seen the Sistine Chapel back in the 60s or 70s? It was pretty dark, you know. Uh, and that darkness came from centuries of candle soot that had darkened the many beautiful images that Michelangelo had, had painted, you know, those beautiful frescoes. So some art historians back in the, I think about the 40s, 50s, and 60s, they theorized that Michelangelo held a dark, foreboding view of the universe, you know, and that he projected his angst upon the frescoes. So they say, well, look at those frescoes. They look so dark, and Michelangelo himself must have been a man of great melancholy. The problem with that was in the 1980s, the Vatican hired a company from Japan to clean the Sistine Chapel. (laughs) <laughs> and what they did is they lifted off, lifted off centuries of, of, uh, of soot. And underneath they found what? They found bright, vivid colors. In fact, if we look at uh, the Sistine Chapel now, it reminds me of walking into a Baskin-Robbins ice cream store. You know, It's, it's super bright. And even look at the, uh, the uniform of the Swiss Guard. That was designed by Michelangelo. So he was very rich, very beautiful colors. So in the same way, many people maintain kind of a dark view of celibacy. They see this as as a yoke or burden that oppresses priests. But I think the darkness that comes is when we only look at it as a law. So, you know, it's only a law that could be changed. And wouldn't priests be much happier if the law could change than they get married? Well, well, let's look at the very call itself uh, that the church has has looked upon as celibacy enables the priest to, to live the life of Jesus Christ himself. And that was one of the key goals of this book is to, to show that uh, there's much, much more than simply a law. There's a beautiful and rich theology that underlies this, this way of life, this discipline. So then um, there's a, can we say there's a need for renewal because this hasn't been reflected upon enough and further reflection through this threefold dimension will help bring that renewal? Yes, it will. It will. And it'll help us to get out of some of the very pragmatic thinking about celibacy. So in usually if you if I go to a, a dinner or cocktail party or whatever, people want to speak in. One of the first things they want to talk to me about, particularly if they're not Catholics, is about is about celibacy. 
And I understand. So I'm always happy to answer questions. But I think uh, perhaps uh, many of the Catholic Church, in taking a more defensive posture, have uh, resorted to simply pragmatic arguments to justify celibacy. So, for example, one of the most common here is, well, how could a parish afford to pay the expenses of a married priest or family? Or if his wife had a job and a family and had to relocate? And perhaps one of the more common ones is, well, the Catholic Church does not allow married men to become ordained priests because uh, he wouldn't have as much time to give himself to the parish. Well, that's all those are very true in a certain level. But underneath that, I think even still is, what about the life itself? The Christological dimension, the first of the three dimensions, refers to Christ. It refers to Jesus Christ. If he's not placed in the center, and this is really one of the central parts of the book, unless he's not, unless we place him as the center in the Catholic Church as the reason and the paradigm for celibacy, then all other arguments for celibacy will, will kind of go down to that more pragmatic view. You know, it's simply to get more work done. <laughs> you know, and we're all very busy these days, and it's not very attractive for young men coming here saying, oh, I want to be a priest, I want to be celibate so I can get more work done. Well, no, it has to do with intimacy. It has to do with uh, becoming um, very close to Jesus Christ and able to pour oneself out you know, uh, to Christ in the church. So St. Bernard of Clairvaux, that beautiful saint in the 11, 1200s, he refers, and this can apply to, to all Christians you know, through baptism, he says we can either be reservoirs or it can be canals. He says a reservoir, how does a reservoir work? And we have many here in Colorado because we need them because of the dry lands. A reservoir first is filled up with water, and then from the gentle overflowing of its abundance, it then shares the water with the plants, the animals, and with the cities here. In the time of drought, the reservoir still has plenty of water. So many uh, Christians are reservoirs. They allow themselves to be filled up with God's love through prayer and through giving themselves out in love. But others become canals, and canals very much what we do today. It's doing busy work. It's taking water from one place to another, and that's that's all fine and dandy. But what happens in the time of drought? The canal dries up because it has not, nothing left for itself. And so that Christological dimension, I have a particular few pointed paragraphs you know, about the importance that priests make prayer and union with God the, the foundation of their priestly life, because if not, they, they become very... Uh, bitter and even lonely because they're not seeking their, their source uh, in God, who is their inheritance. Yeah, so that's um, foundational, is that, that Christological from which everything else flows forward. Well, excellent. Well, and I like um, that you you said the word use the word source because that brings us to I think chapter four, the the Eucharist and priestly celibacy. Because isn't sometimes the Eucharist called the source and summit? Yes, oh, very much so. And that was the Second Vatican Council, wanted to renew uh, the, the Catholic Church through the Eucharist. So on um, one of the key, I think one of the most important quotations I have in the whole book, it's on page 170, in the very chapter called the Eucharist and Priestly Celibacy. Uh, John Paul II, in a, a document called Ecclesia de Eucharistia, this is encyclical, that's the highest, um, most authoritative document that a pope can issue. It was the very last teaching document of John Paul II before he died. This would be in 2002, 2003. He says this, 
The implantation of this program of a renewed impetus in Christian living passes through the Eucharist. So John Paul is asking, how can we renew the church? How can we renew our own hearts? How by renewing our hearts in the church can we renew the world? He's pointing to the Eucharist. So he continues, every commitment to holiness, every activity aimed at carrying out the church's mission, every work of pastoral planning must draw the strength it needs from the Eucharistic mystery and in turn be directed to that mystery as its culmination. So when I came to chapter 4, my intent was then to, to unify everything that I had said before on theology and to say, how can I present to the reader a few takeaway thoughts by way of a synthesis in which I can bring together certainly the history, but more the threefold paradigm, the Christological, ecclesiological, and eschatological. How can I bring that together? Because every symphony, for example, has that moving final movement, or every movie you see or play, you get to find out what happens to the different characters. So in the chapter four, which is relatively brief, but I did that for a purpose, is simply to show how these all can come, be seen to come together in the Eucharist by way of a synthesis, a, synthesis, a, a summary as a locus of priestly celibacy. So one of, the, um, one of the paradigms I propose is to show the high point of the Catholic life, of course, is the Eucharist or the celebration of the Mass. And the Eucharist is, and this is from the Catholic Catechism, the Compendium, the Eucharist is the very sacrifice of the body and blood of the Lord Jesus, which he instituted to perpetuate the sacrifice of the cross throughout the ages until his return in glory. So as Catholics, we believe that at every Mass that the priest celebrates, that is Jesus very present in the person uh, of the priest. The priest acts in the person of Christ. And it's a it's a re-perpetuation of the same sacrifice on Calvary, but in an unbloody manner. But there's much more that uh, is present than what this eye simply sees. Because every sacrament, there's seven sacraments in the Catholic Church, is a holy sign. It's a sign that affects what it signifies, but it also brings our mind to something deeper. So as the celibate priest offers Mass, there's several things going on. One is that um, his, his celibacy enhances, facilitates the union with Christ during this offering of the Eucharist. You know, he's very visibly seen as giving himself fully over to Christ. So that's the Christological dimension. And then in his celebration of the Mass, also in his preaching, um, in his ministering to the people, that's the ecclesiological dimension. And so for now, he, the celibacy enables him in the unified prayer to extend himself to the people of God as shepherd, as bridegroom, as father even. Um, and that's what you know, our parishioners call us. They call us father. You know, there's that spiritual fatherhood, the generating of life through baptism, through preaching the word, particularly through the Eucharist. Then finally, the third element in the Mass, the eschatological dimension, and I didn't speak about the eschatological before, the third and final eschatological dimension, the third of the, the three, is the way in which celibacy um, illustrates the priest as living the life of the blessed in heaven, because our Lord Jesus said that in heaven, the blessed are neither married nor given in marriage. So they're already living in this life, a sign of how it will be in the eschaton, in the afterlife, in the beatific vision. So the eschatological dimension during the Mass refers to the celibacy of the priest, it draws the people in, it, it, it enhances, it brings, it, it, he becomes an image of Jesus Christ himself, who, as Hebrew says, in the great cloud of witnesses, continually offers um, 
the author of Hebrews refers to Christ as always living, making intercession for the church. And so that was one way in which I try to bring all three together, but particularly in the celebration of the Mass. And I just got so excited about that. And if anything, this book, particularly the last chapter, is to get some ideas rolling, get some ideas out there for other scholars to start thinking. So if anything, it's like an introduction for more thought. <clears throat> in no way is it to be seen as a complete home on celibacy, but it's to get some foundation in there so we can move forward the thinking and the reflection upon a celibacy, because I think we're relatively behind. There's still a lot of work to get done. Right. So it, it's it's hope that you hope through your work then to kind of renew and develop this teaching, especially this this um, threefold dimension, its synthesis with the Eucharist, this idea of, of um, celibacy as gift. Um I wonder, though, then, you know, that, that's kind of just a general outline. Specifically, what are some areas that you think could use some further research? Yes, well, I could not help uh, when I was writing this to think about several things. One is the way in which uh, celibacy is related to matrimony, to marriage, and vice versa. Because if we're making the distinction between marriage and celibacy, there has to be some kind of beautiful connection between the two. It's not as though the, the priest is totally unrelated to marriage. I mean, his parents are married, but we're married, um, at least, you know, in the general rule. But um, what is the intrinsic uh, connection between the two? And I think one element about celibacy is, uh, this goes to Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, where it speaks about husband love your wife as Christ loved the church. So celibacy brings to mind to the priest the way in which he's called to be, to live the life of the bridegroom, which is Jesus Christ, towards his bride, the church. And there's a lot of work there. Now, this is something that St. John Paul II really helped to develop. Um, early on in his, in his pontificate, around 1978, 79, 80, he came out with what's called the Theology of the Body, conferences, some beautiful reflections. He made over 120 of them on, the, on, on, on matrimony, on marriage. But he also had a section there on celibacy, showing that celibacy has a, a nuptial dimension to it. There's a way in which uh, the celibate priest, for example, and this is, I devote a section to that, in which he discovers within his heart a certain nuptial uh, drive to give himself, pour himself out for the people uh, to whom he serves. I think uh, the celibate priest can serve as a reminder to married people that marriage is not an ultimate, but it's a sacrament through which people can grow in holiness. So married uh, people are to help each other get to heaven. And uh, there are plenty of opportunities to grow spiritually in marriage because it requires much sacrifice. But from my perspective as a celibate priest, I am very grateful to the spouses who remind me that I am called to live a life of sacrificial service and not one of a comfortable bachelor-like lifestyle. And this is I'm always edified by these beautiful families that I, that I visit in the parish, and they inspire me through their sacrificial love for each other and imitation of Christ for his church. So that's one area I think that can be beautifully um, uh, developed with regards to the relationship between marriage and celibacy. It's also with regards to theology of the married priesthood, because even though... In the Latin church, there is not the instituted married priesthood. There are married priests, you know, by the way of exception. 
But by way of a rule, really, for Eastern churches, they have had married priests for many centuries. But what I discovered is there's not much of a theology underlying that. You know, there's not much of a, a thinking through of what that means or how that reflects any deeper theological realities. Then finally, another area for study is how does this threefold dimension that's Christological, ecclesiological, eschatological, how can that apply to the celibate lay faithful? In other words, for a man or a woman who is not called to get married or is not married or is widowed, uh, can this threefold paradigm apply to their life? Is there anything there that may help them understand their walk in this in this life uh, towards heaven. So I actually end that chapter with some points for further discussion, hoping that someone takes them up and is able to develop them further than I certainly did. Well, excellent. Well, well, thank you so much, Father Gary, for writing this excellent book and making the time to talk to us. Um, I'd like, though, to, to take a little bit more of your time, if you're okay, to ask you our traditional question, what are you working on now? In the way of academic works, oh, I just have time to prepare my classes. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, I got this book written because in the summertime, I just take four weeks off. And I, I actually I got away to a home for a retired priest on the East Coast, which by definition is a quiet place. When you're living with retired priests, there's not a lot of noise there. Right. So I was able to devote uh, some weeks of writing. So I may do that again this this coming June. And... What I'd like to do in June is to continue my reflections on the Eucharist and celibacy, because I've just scratched the surface. As you know, Chapter 4 is relatively brief. They're just kind of some points of synthesis. If anything, it could be like a serial, namely, to be continued. Right. Um, and I, I would really want to, to look more deeper into that. I also want to uh, do something on the angels. Um, on the theology of the angels, that's been very close to me, uh, and also on the diaconate. Now, I teach holy orders this coming semester at the seminary, and so holy orders is the course in which we study the episcopacy, the presbyterate, and the diaconate, the threefold uh, grade of holy orders. But what has been clear to me is that the deacon and the theology of the diaconate is relatively underdeveloped. So that's another area in the Catholic Church that there's a we have to be a lot more thinking and writing done in that area. So that's certainly, I've got some things written on that, but I have to pull that together and maybe get out a couple of essays on that subject. Well, excellent. Well, we, I look forward to hearing more about your coming work. Oh, thank you. Right. Well, thank you so much again, Father Gary, for making time with us. Hey, you're welcome, Frank. It's been, time's just flown by. All right. We have a good day and God Thank bless. You. God bless you. This has been the Christian Studies Channel of the New Books Network. I'm Dr. Franklin Roush of Lander University, the host of the channel. I want to thank you for listening to this interview, and I hope you'll come back and listen to another one soon. Mm-hmm.